diet is, as everyone's aware, is critically important, right? And diet isn't just the nutrients that you need to meet your biological needs. It's also the other chemicals found in those foods and applied to those foods. I think we all need to think more about what we're consuming, how we produce what we're consuming in terms of foods, and what that's doing, not just for our own health, but for the health of the entire planet. I'm Jonah Chester. I'm Clay Catlin, and you're listening to Animal Human. This show is a production of IU's College of Arts and Sciences and a proud part of the 2018 semester. Each episode, we talk with a different IU researcher to examine where we, as humans, belong in the animal kingdom. We also examine the interactions of humans and animals in art, literature, and science. In this episode, Jonah sits down with Dr. Michael Wasserman, a professor in the anthropology department. Dr. Wasserman's work focuses on how primate diets influence their behavior. He's done work throughout Africa, including in the Kabbalah National Park in Uganda. Dr. Wasserman's work investigating primate diets also helps reveal our own roots and how our past diets influenced our developments from early hominids into who we are today. Mike Wasserman, I'm assistant professor in anthropology and also in human biology. So I teach in both programs. I'm in my finishing my second year, so starting my third year here at IU. Um, in addition to teaching in anthropology and human biology, I'm also I've been developing, setting up, and now running the Peel Lab. So it's the Primate Environmental Endocrinology Lab. So that involves looking at various analyses to understand primate hormone levels and plant chemistry and the interaction between the two. Can you uh, tell me a little bit more about the Peel Lab? I- I'm very interested in that. You're kind of one of the founding members of it. What- what's some of the hands-on practical work you're going to be doing with that? Yep. So I start- started the Peel Lab here uh, two years ago and I brought in a number of students, both grad students and undergrads. And now we have some staff as well that help run the lab. And so basically the main goal is to look at how various environmental factors influence primate biology in terms of their physiology, behavior, and the population status for a number of different species across the tropics in Latin America, Africa, and um, we're looking to do some work in Southeast Asia as well. We're really interested in how these environmental factors get biologically embedded in the primates as mediated by the endocrine system. So understanding things like how does predation affect primates, how does diet affect primates, how does human activity and disturbance affect primates, not directly through things like mortality. Obviously, predation would end up with some individuals getting eaten, right? We're more interested in the long-term, more subtle effects of these environmental factors, how it affects their stress levels, how it affects their reproduction, things like that. For instance, I've had a long-term interest in chronic stress and the effects of chronic stress on primates, including humans. And so that can mean, you know, with elevated cortisol levels, a hormone produced by the adrenal gland that's often considered an index of stress, um, when you have this constantly elevated state of cortisol levels and the stress response in general, this can affect other systems in the body. So it can cause the immune system to be suppressed, it can cause reproduction to be suppressed, and it can have long-term health effects on things like cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, brain health, and so on. So that's not just in, I mean, that's in primates, but it's also found in humans as well. So your your research sort of you look at apes to kind of figure out how this would affect humans as well. Am, am I am I surmising that correctly? Yeah, I would say that's something that's come in more recently in my career. So I started off being very interested in conservation of tropical forests, of monkeys, apes, and so on. And the more I've studied apes and monkeys, become interested in the human literature and, and human medical literature. 
in terms of, you know, how can we use long-term studies of apes and monkeys in the field in their natural environments to give us a little more context in terms of the ecology and evolution of our own diseases. So yes, that's definitely something I've been interested in more recently. Can you tell me a little bit about your class you're teaching for the uh, semester this year? It's hormones and human behavior. Yes. Yeah, so this is a upper level class that brings in around 25 students. What I do with the class is kind of use my framework for, you know, I have this main interest in ecology and evolution and environmental issues surrounding human activity. And so we do a lot of work looking at chronic stress, how the endocrine system uh, mediates dealing with stressors in the environment through that production of cortisol, through that what we call the HPA axis. It's the hypothalamo-pituitary-adrenal axis. So we go through kind of the nuts and bolts of how the endocrine system works, but then we focus more on the adaptive significance of that system. So how does it allow, say, a monkey living in the forest environment deal with predators that are trying to attack it and consume it? Or how does it deal with logging and deforestation from people in their environment? So that's a, a good chunk of the class is looking at chronic stress related to a lot of these different factors. And then we also look a lot at reproduction and things that can influence reproduction, suppress reproduction, including endocrine disruptors. So things in the environment that mimic hormones. And when they get into the body, they either block the hormone action or they can increase that hormone action. Are there any particularly notorious environmental chemicals that uh, do that? So for the Peel Lab and for my research, yeah. we're more focused on the natural kind of occurring endocrine disruptors, so things called phytosteroids. So these are plant compounds that mimic estrogen. Phytoestrogens will mimic estrogen. You can have phytoprogesterones that are mimicking progesterone. So that's what we're looking at. We're also, though, getting into synthetic endocrine disruptors and starting to look at pollution in primate environments. Things like BPA is probably a, a famous one with people mm -hmm. that these plastics that can leach into foods, get into your body, can cause problems because they mimic estrogen and other things can mimic other hormones. So we're not looking at BPA, but we are looking at pesticides. So pesticides are definitely an issue because what you have pretty much around the world, you might have a national park that's protected and you know in this pristine state. But around the national park, there's often agriculture. And with agriculture, you often get a lot of use of pesticides. Um, especially, you know, in the tropics, you can get a lot of use of pesticides because there's so many um, fungi and insect species that you might have to deal with. So we're looking at some pesticides and we're also looking at flame retardants as well. So these are just in generally applied on consumer goods. And so they're actually a nice index of human activity because somewhere where you have a lot of development, you're going to have a lot of consumer goods and a lot of these flame retardants can get into the environment and we can measure those to look at their presence across a number of different locations. One of the other classes you teach uh, is called Evolution of the Human Ecological Footprint, and it examines, uh, quote, a series of threshold moments in the history of our species that had great implications for the environment. What are these threshold moments? This course kind of came out of my experience as a grad student. I was TAing a human diet course, which really focused on the evolution of human diet and my interest in conservation and environmental issues. What I was, I was just thinking, you know, well, it'd be really cool to take this human diet course and kind of switch the perspective so that we're not looking necessarily at the human species and how we're affected by these threshold moments, but how our changes and what we do affected the other species on Earth. Those threshold moments um, that I, I wouldn't say they're, 
you know one specific right. moment in time. So it's not it's not like a clean cut like this exact moment in the past <clears throat> thousand years. It's more a sweeping changes that happen every once in a while. Exactly. So you have this kind of general time frame when you get some major shifts that occur over you know maybe a hundred few hundred years, maybe a few thousand years, but those changes result in major shifts in the way biodiversity looks on Earth, the way climate systems operate. And so those threshold moments include, I'd say, the origin of our species and then megafaunal collapse. So when there was this time period when a lot of the large uh, mammals went extinct, it looks like that's due not just to human activity, but also climate change at the time, but probably a combination of human hunting and climate change in those time periods. And then the resulting kind of broad spectrum revolution when our diets shifted from consuming those large megafaunal species to many smaller species found in the environment. And so you get a lot of actually diversity in what we're consuming during that broad spectrum revolution in terms of plants and animals. And then we have the shift towards agriculture. So the origins of agriculture are our big threshold moment. As you move through time with agriculture, eventually, you know, you're starting to get urbanization, these city centers forming, and then you get colonialism and globalization as a result. So this long distance interaction of human populations and humans affecting environments in far off places due to colonial activity. And then you get the industrial revolution and the green revolution with diet. And so this system of growing and increasing productivity of our crops through high input systems. So using a lot of water, pesticides, fertilizers, fossil fuels. From that, you get the great acceleration. I'd say, and that's really the, the last really major threshold moment that is currently considered by some as the start of the Anthropocene, where human activity has now come to dominate the landscape. And so that great acceleration occurred right around the end of uh, World War II. And you see across a number of different measures, this exponential growth in human consumption of resources from that time period till, until today. And as a result, we get all of the resulting biodiversity loss, climate change, eutrophication of water systems, and all the environmental issues that we're dealing with today. How do you predict our diets today changing in the future, and how will that impact our evolution uh, further in, in the coming centuries and millennia? First thing we want to think about, you know, when we talk about evolution, you can, there's biological evolution that depends on those changes in gene frequencies in a population, and you have cultural evolution. So you can have shifts in the tools and technologies that are used to meet, you know, goals such as growing food and so on. And so a lot of the changes we've seen over our history, especially since the origins of agriculture, have been cultural, right? And there really hasn't been a whole lot of biological changes as a result of diet. You do have some, like milk. Mm -hmm. And some um, people who have the ability to produce lactase and digest lactose into adulthood, while others, most people can't do that. Um, you have others in dealing with alcohol, dealing with wheat and so on. But there's not a whole lot of biological change. So thinking about the future, because we do so much through culture now, what I would say, you know, it's a really interesting, difficult question to, to answer. I would say it's probably has something to do with the homogeneity of our diets that's occurred over those threshold moments. So if we shift it back to how human diet has changed from our origins through hunting and gathering, through agriculture, through the great acceleration, the general trend we see is a great loss of diversity in our diets to the point that today 
we get almost 50% of our calories globally from three crops, wheat, rice, and corn. If you add three more crops, you get up to 80% of our calories. And if you go up to 14 crops, you're getting 90% of calories from that. And so we've had this loss of diversity within our own diets over time to go along with the loss of biodiversity. And so I would say if, in terms of future human evolution, future, if you're talking about biological changes, it'll probably be something to do with our interactions with those three, six, 14 crops that we're highly dependent on. So is that loss of diversity in crops and what we farm, is that necessarily a bad thing or is it just sort of, you know, is it just sort of an adaptive thing? We chose these couple of crops because they're easy to grow and it's a convenience thing. It takes less input and resources from us. So will that turn out to be a negative thing or is it just kind of like a, well, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just different than the way things have been in the past. So I don't like to use like, you know, is it a good thing, a bad thing? I think more about cost and benefit. And I think what's dangerous or what's risky is kind of this whole idea of putting all your eggs in one basket, especially if you're in an environment that's changing. It's not just that we're depending only on those few crops. We actually have lost a lot of the varieties of those crops as well. And so there's a great reduction in the genetic diversity of our food crops Sure, that can mean you know, it's a simplified system, so it's easier to manage and so on. But what I would warn against, the biggest cost I see is that with any loss of diversity, especially in the face of environmental change, there are fewer ways for those organisms to deal with those changes. What I mean is you, know, you often have an issue where you have a crop that has very little genetic diversity and a pest comes in, right? And it can easily sweep through the population because there isn't any genetic variation for it to be able to handle that pest. And so I would be most concerned with that. I think we might be setting ourselves up for some food shortage issues if there was to be a shift in climate or a shift in pests that are attacking those crops. It's very similar to, have you ever seen the film Interstellar? There's like a disease that kills off all of the corn and it basically causes humanity to starve because that was one of the few crops they came to rely on. That's a great Hollywood example of what I'm saying. Yeah, that I think if you have more diversity in your food system, it's going to be more um, resistant to any potential threats that could cause a food shortage and thus suffering for humanity. So you would recommend that we do diversify our crops once again, despite the fact it might be uh, a high level of input the reward far outweighs the risk is basically what you're saying. Yes, I definitely think that. I think diversifying, increasing diversity of our food crops, protecting biodiversity of wild species, having agricultural systems that are agroecological systems so we benefit from wild biodiversity as well, is it's only going to help. And you also, in addition to researching the diets of humans and our evolution, you also researched the diets of apes and other primates. Can you tell me, how has their diet evolved over the last couple centuries as humans, as we go into the Anthropocene and humans are now influencing their environment? Are we impacting what they eat? Great question. Um, so I'll use, in many ways, yes. I'm going to use one example that is most well known to me and yeah. that I've seen. We have planted eucalyptus. So eucalyptus is from Australia, and we plant it all over the world because uh, my understanding is, you know, it, it's good for draining swamps if that's what you want to do. It grows fast, so it's a good source of fuel wood. And so it's been beneficial, and we've planted it in many places. In Uganda, around the national park, there, were, there are eucalyptus that were planted in as well. And this occurs 
also in locations Southeast Asia and Latin America. And what happens is because eucalyptus is really high in sodium, and sodium is a limiting nutrient in the tropical forest environment, primates will leave the forest, the protected area, and they'll go into these eucalyptus groves and they'll basically binge on the eucalyptus for a couple days where they'll just eat high amounts of eucalyptus, bark, seeds, and so on. So the, I've studied red colobus monkeys the most, and I've seen them. They do this. They'll Every few weeks, they have this path. They're going through the forest. They're getting their different wild species that provide their nutrients to them. And then they'll end up in the eucalyptus grove, and they'll binge on that eucalyptus for a little bit to get that sodium. And so that's one major shift that we've seen in terms of their diet. It's also been seen in howler monkeys. It's been seen in orangutans. It's been seen in gorillas, a lot of other species as well, I'm sure. So by influencing what they're eating now, we're influencing how they'll evolve, how they'll change. Is, is that correct? Because I know you said in the course of change of human diets, ours has mostly been cultural. Mm -hmm. Or it, it's been we move from like hunter-gatherers to agriculture. For the apes, are we actively influencing how they evolve by planting these non-native species? So the question of evolution, that's a, that's a tricky one, right? Yeah. So it depends on are they going to – is evolution going to be able to keep up biological evolution, is it going to occur fast enough to keep up with the environmental change? Because mm -hmm. often, you know, you need mutations to occur. Most of those mutations are neutral or costly. So it's rare for a beneficial mutation to come about. It's possible, but I would say more, what's more likely is that, yes, we're changing their diets. That's going to change their physiology and behavior currently. It's hard to predict what's going to happen into the future if they'll be able to adapt to that. You know, sometimes maybe there's some beneficial aspects to that for them from getting easy access to nutrients that otherwise are limiting in the environment, like the sodium and the eucalyptus. But there's not just nutrients in plant foods. There's a lot of chemicals that come along with that. That chemistry can have negative effects on their physiology and behavior. So, for example, in a study we did with the red colobus looking at phytoestrogens across their diet, three main food items were estrogenic. A fig, which was native to the forest, a legume, which is closely related to soy, also native to the forest, but then eucalyptus. We don't have data to say that that's negatively impacting them yet, but that you could have a situation where if they're relying too much on this introduced species, you could have negative physiological effects from overconsuming a certain type of chemical other than the nutrients. So as <clears throat> the human population continues to rise, which you know presumably it will, how do you imagine 100, 200 years from now, as we begin to move into the spaces that were once empty, that were once these primates' natural habitat, how do you predict their diet's going to change accordingly with that? Definitely. I mean, I think what you're going to see is, and we're already seeing it now, you know, let alone who knows 200 years from now what things are going to look like. What you're seeing is more and more crop breeding, right? So the primates and other wildlife are moving into farm fields to look for nutrients and get those nutrients from those crops. And also not only is that changing their diet, but then they're also getting exposed to pesticides if those pesticides are being applied to those crops. Their diets are shifting as they respond to human encroachment, human disturbance. And not only are their diets changing, but their exposure to chemicals in addition to what's found in the foods that's applied to those foods is also a novel kind of disturbance to their physiology. And then I guess same question, but how will our growth as a species affect human diets? So I would think, you know, 
as our population increases, we already have problems with availability of meat. You know, the most common nutrient deficiency in the human population today is anemia as a result of lack of iron, which is met from meat consumption. If you look at data from case studies around Africa, you have not only loss uh, in terms of biomass of wild species from bushmeat hunting, you also have loss of fisheries, right? And so I think our biggest shift and our biggest dietary problem we're going to face is how to continue to meet protein and iron needs of the human population as we're losing biomass of wild species, which in a lot of locations people depend on those wild species if they don't have access to domesticated animals for protein. Um, And so probably what you're going to see is more and more vegetarian diets or not necessarily 100% vegetarian, but less dependence on meat and more reliance on plants and maybe insects as well to meet protein needs. Before I let you go, is there anything else you want to put on the record that you think our listeners should be aware of about your research, about the courses you're teaching, anything you think deserves airtime? Um, I guess I would just end by saying, you know, diet is, as everyone's aware, is critically important, right? And diet isn't just the nutrients that you need to meet your biological needs. It's also the other chemicals found in those foods and applied to those foods. I think we all need to think more about what we're consuming how we produce what we're consuming in terms of foods and what that's doing, not just for our own health, but for the health of the entire planet. In order for you know us to have sustainable wild systems, sustainable forests around the world, but also for us to have healthy lives moving forward for our own human species. This show has been a project of the Indiana University College of Arts and Sciences semester. Thank you to our guest for this episode, Dr. Wasserman, for taking time out of his day to speak with me. Editing, hosting, and mixing for this episode is provided by Jonah. Our intro song is Night Owl by Broke for Free. Our outro song is Warm Up Suit, also by Broke for Free. Both of those were accessed and used courtesy of a Creative Commons attribution license via the Free Music Archive. On the next and final episode, Clay sits down with Dr. Gene Sept. They're going to talk about how we became who we are today. That's how we made our transition from being the animals we once were to the humans that we are today. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.